I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to the Cold Case Canada Halloween Special. For this episode, we'll be visiting Victoria and two haunted mansions in Burnaby, British Columbia. We'll also be travelling to a haunted highway in BC's interior. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. This story of the Victoria Ghost first appeared in my book, Blood, Sweat and Fear, The Story of Inspector Vance. Victoria is a laid-back capital of British Columbia. The city is known for its stunning ocean views and fabulous gardens, but it's also renowned for its ghosts. Victoria has the distinction of being the most haunted city in the province, and depending who you talk to, maybe even the country. On Saturday, September 26, 1936, readers of The Daily Colonist learned that Victor Gravelin, a former reporter at the newspaper, and his estranged wife, Doris, had been missing for four days. Police, the article said, would be conducting a search in the Oak Bay area where the couple was last seen. Victor and Doris married in 1929 and separated less than six years later. They had one child, a boy named Robin. On the night that she disappeared, Doris had been at her job as a home care nurse, looking after a woman who lived on Beach Drive. She told her employer that she was going out for a walk and would be back shortly. She was actually going to meet Victor, who was living with his parents and desperately trying to get Doris to take him back. She never returned from the meeting. Victor was well known in Victoria as a man who couldn't handle his booze and was a nasty drunk. He'd worked on the sports desk at the Daily Colonist for 10 years and left, or more likely was pushed out, at the end of 1934. From there, things got steadily worse for him and his family. Five days after their disappearance, the colonist ran headshots of the couple in the Sunday paper. 36-year-old Victor was described as 5 foot 11 with a medium build and Doris was described as an attractive 30-year-old with auburn hair. One of her eyes was blue, the other was brown. When she was last seen, Doris was wearing a green dress, blue coat with silver buttons and a grey hat. After the story ran in the Daily Colonist, police received a tip that the couple had been seen near the golf course on the same night that they disappeared. A woman who lived nearby told police that she'd heard a scream sometime after 9pm. Victoria police brought along a bloodhound and a tracker and searched the bush and shoreline around the golf course. Police Chief John Syme said that they'd found indications of a violent struggle in some bush just off Beach Drive. There were deep marks in the ground and a lot of blood. At 3.40 that afternoon, John Johnson, a caddy at the Victoria Golf Club, was searching along the waterfront at the edge of the course, looking for a lost golf ball. He caught a glimpse of what looked like a pink sweater tucked between some logs. As he went to pick up the sweater, he realised he was looking at the body of a woman. He told some boys who were nearby to run to the clubhouse and call police. When police got back there with Johnson, they found Doris lying at the base of a cliff. 
She was lying on her back and well hidden by the long grass. Her dress was matted with blood and had been pulled up underneath her body, as though she'd been dragged some distance by her legs. She wasn't wearing any shoes and her stockings had holes in the knees. Her body was badly bruised, she'd been beaten about the head and there were bloodstains around her neck and chest. A large red mark ran across her neck where she'd been strangled. Doris's coat, hat and shoes were missing, but a pair of men's shoes were found near her body. Police issued a warrant for the missing victor, naming him as a suspect in his wife's murder. A month later, a local man was rowing along the waterfront when he found a body tangled in a bed of kelp in deep water just south of Gonzales Point. He rowed to shore and notified police. The body was quickly identified as the missing Victor Gravelin. He was fully dressed and when they searched his clothing, they found Doris's missing shoes, her hat and her belt stuffed in the pocket of his overcoat. There was also the piece of hemp rope that was used to strangle her. Victor had killed Doris, then walked to the steep rock ledge and jumped. The first recorded sighting of Doris happened shortly after her death. People talked about seeing a woman either walking along the golf course, crossing Beach Drive near the Oak Bay Beach Hotel, or standing near the water where Victor Gravelin had drowned himself. They may not have known her by name, but if you talked about the ghost of the golf course, any local would know who you meant. And because most of the sightings occurred at the end of March or in April, she became known as the April Ghost. These are a few of the sightings that have been recorded over the years. In April 1964, a man was fishing from a rock shelf near where Victor had drowned. He turned and saw a woman in a brown suit standing a few metres away, looking out across the water. He remembered thinking that her clothes looked out of date and she seemed sad. All of a sudden, she dashed towards the water, melted away and vanished. Also in April 1964, Tony Gregson, then a 16-year-old high school kid, was walking on the golf course near the 7th tee with a friend when the temperature suddenly dropped and they came across Doris. He described her as a luminous grey with an aura about her. He said there was no way you could mistake her for a living person. As she moved along the beach, the kids noticed that her feet seemed to pass over the pebbles without coming into contact with them. In 1982, three teenagers were driving along Beach Avenue around one in the morning when they saw a woman in a long white dress glide along the road in front of them. They thought they were going to hit her and then she just disappeared. According to Victoria Ghost Law, couples that were engaged and saw the ghost broke up shortly after the sighting. The conclusion drawn was that Doris was not a fan of marriage. In March 1972, 35 years after Doris's murder, a couple of University of Victoria students were walking along the golf course about 10 o'clock one night. Fiona saw a bright shiny white light between herself and the ocean. Patrick Dunne, now a retired university professor, historian and author, still remembers the night vividly. I didn't know anything about Doris Glavin and the murder and the investigation or any of that at the time. 
My girlfriend Fiona and I, uh, Fiona lived not too far from the golf course, and on March 12th, 1972, we went out for a walk about 9.30 in the evening. We were both students at the University of Victoria. Fiona suggests we walk over towards the beach, and looking back, I see it was probably the fifth hole of Victoria Golf Course, and we were walking northeast along the golf links, and Fiona was startled, and she was um, apprehensive and pointed up on the hill. Fiona described it initially as a, almost like a Christmas tree shape, or later a classic image of a woman in a long gown, and it was glowing white and luminous on, on the top of this hill. And we both felt a compunction just to turn around and walk away from it, rather than go and explore what it was. And I kept looking over my shoulder, and I could see it still there. And when we got back to her home, I said, you know, I think we probably saw Greenskeeper's tool shed. So we went back the next day, and it, there was nothing there. And soon after, I was talking to a local journalist, Ed Gould. And Ed, who wrote local history books, he also belonged to the Victoria Psychic Society. And he said, oh, you've seen the, I think he called it the Easter Ghost. So he interviewed me, and Fiona, who was... I don't know how he persuaded her because she was quite skeptical, but uh, he interviewed her. And then the story appeared in a local newspaper to um, our embarrassment. So we didn't know about the ghost at the time. And alas, we, we, nor did we realize courting couples, you know, to use an old-fashioned expression, we were, you know, very much a romantic couple, that their, their relationship is doomed. We might well have married had we not seen the, the, the ghost. But, you know, um, having said that... Eve, uh, you know, I the, the image is still fresh in my mind. I wouldn't say it was a life, well, maybe it was a life-changing image because we didn't get married. But, you know, I could still replay that evening, the, the dark green of the grass and the, the, the inky dark of the sky, and this luminous white thing was so incongruous. Sightings of Doris's ghost were always on a weekend and almost always in two specific areas. She was most often spotted around five in the afternoon, walking along the golf course wearing an old-fashioned brown suit. It's only after she went by that the person realised that something wasn't right. It's later at night, usually around 10pm, when she's spotted close to the water. She's wearing a long white dress. Some say it was a wedding dress. And she's seen standing with her arms outstretched. People who saw her said she rushed towards them and suddenly shrank into a small pool of light and then disappeared. Afterwards, they said they felt a change in the atmosphere, usually a drop in temperature, and they would become anxious and feel a sense of dread. After the deaths of his mother and father, young Robin Gravelin was adopted by his maternal grandparents. He was renamed Robin Thompson and sent to boarding school on Vancouver Island. After the end of World War II, Robin was sent to England to finish his education at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst. Much of his career was spent in the Far East. In 1994, Lon Wood was writing a Halloween story about the April Ghost for the Times Colonist, a variation of the paper that Victor Gravelin had worked at 60 years before. Lon tracked down Robin in Staffordshire, England, where he was in charge of public transport in the Midlands. When I was researching this story for my book Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance, 
I tracked Lon down at his home on Vancouver Island. Lon told me that when he asked Robin about his mother's ghost, he was shocked that Robin had no idea how his parents had died and didn't know anything about his family history. Lon sent him newspaper clippings of the murder-suicide and of the many ghost sightings. Local legend had it that Doris's spirit was restless and would not leave until her son had been told how his parents died. Seven months after Lon's phone call that told him of his unfortunate family history, Robin, then 65, died of heart failure during a gallbladder operation in London. Lon, the reporter, had a heart attack later that year. He left the Times colonist and was told that he had a one in five chance of surviving without a transplant. Happily, I can tell you that Lon continues to survive without a transplant, and to his knowledge, there have been no further sightings of the April ghost. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories with tales of the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. For the next ghost story, we're heading to Burnaby, British Columbia and the Overland Mansion. Around 1909, when the streetcar line was extended to Boundary Road, Charles Peter, head of the Blue Ribbon Tea Business, thought that this area of North Burnaby, which is called Vancouver Heights, could become another exclusive subdivision for the rich, just like Shaughnessy had. Charles Peter had architect Samuel McClure design a house that would be a model for what the rich could do. It cost $75,000 which was 75 times more than it cost to build an average house at the time. The mansion was named Overlyn because you could look right over Barad Inlet to North Vancouver's Lynn Creek. The house took three years to build and was finished in 1912. But for all Charles Peter's efforts, Vancouver Heights did not become another Shaughnessy. The rich stayed in Vancouver. The Peters family lived here until the late 1920s when the house sold to the Sisters of Charity of Halifax. The nuns renamed the house Seton Academy and ran a private Catholic girls' boarding and day school for the next 40 years. When I visited Overlin in October 2021, I was with CTV reporter Sinjin Alexander, Greg Mansfield and Amanda Quill. We had all two and one-half stories to ourselves. The stained glass windows, the elaborately tiled fireplaces and the wood-panelled walls are just gorgeous. But the most interesting part for me was the attic. You go through the servants' quarters and up a narrow set of stairs until you get to a heavy metal door at the top. This is where the girls must have slept. The floor is still covered in red and grey checkered lino There is a bathroom with several sinks and a large room that likely served as a dormitory. 
1970, the house and grounds were sold to the Action Line Housing Society. A tower was added, and it must have been at that time when the attic windows were boarded up and this heavy locked door was put on. The house may look empty, but it's brimming with paranormal activity. Here's Greg Mansfield. I first visited Overland in 2016. I was invited to go on an investigation with the Cold Spotters investigation team. They're a locally based paranormal research team. And what did you find? When we convened the investigation, we started off in the central living room on the ground floor. And um, we were sitting there and we're just prepping and we suddenly felt this tremendous cold spot. And a cold spot, of course, is where the room suddenly feels very, very chilly, almost ice cold. And here we were on a warm August night at, at Overland, and yet you could literally feel the temperature drop. And we knew that something strange was going on, that we were going to have a good night. How long did it last? Uh, It lasted about five minutes. And what do you think it means? Were they trying to get rid of you, do you think? No, what's generally thought by investigators that what it means is that you're in the presence of an entity that is a ghost. And that for some reason, when they come into a space, they either have to draw energy such as ambient temperature or something from you to manifest themselves. In this case, we didn't see anything. There was no apparition or anything, but you just know you're in the presence of something strange. I know when we talked, when we were out there last year, you mentioned sort of a little girl. And Yes. Tell me about that. Tell me about the little girl. Well, yeah, that's funny. I didn't hear about the little girl until a couple of years later in around 2018. We had experienced the ghost of a coughing man who was heard in the house. Never seen, but he's been heard coughing by the people that run the place, the caretakers and so forth. And we actually recorded that coughing noise. But then we got to know almost literally the little girl a few years later. And she has been spotted many times in the house. As you know, the house was at one time Seton Academy for Girls. Mm, It was a boarding school. And so we wonder if this ghost of this little girl is tied in with that somehow. And she's seen in a white dress. She's been seen by the caretaker most recently than I know of a couple of years ago. The caretaker went in the house to check on something, and she saw this little girl run up the main staircase. So she looked like a real little girl. She was yes. ghostly. Or she, yeah, that's right. We don't know her name, but she looks like she's five or six years old, dressed in a white dress. But she's also been seen, she was seen a couple of summers ago as well by a woman who was in the house doing some cleaning work. She was vacuuming in the living room, but she kind of saw something out the corner of her eye and she looked over to her right, and she saw this little girl standing in the corner of the living room looking at her, smiling. And of course, the woman was startled, of course, at seeing this little girl. But then what was even more shocking for this poor woman is the little girl smiled, turned around and walked straight through a solid wall. And the poor cleaning lady, she turned off the vacuum, ran out the house, went to the caretaker's office and said, I'm sorry, I can never work in that house again. So this little girl's a little mischievous. We also, during an investigation a couple of years ago, actually conversed with the little girl in real time. You're kidding. No, this is the honest truth. We were doing what's called an EVP session. EVP is electronic voice phenomenon. And what we're doing is hoping to record the voice of an entity 
in the house or in the room. And we were in the dining room, which seems to be that hot spot for things to happen. And fellow investigator and I, Marlene, had our recorders out. And we were actually listening to our recorders in real time with earbuds. And Marlene's a real mommy type, and she's a great investigator. And so she called out into the darkness. She said, is the little girl with us? And if I call out the alphabet game, will you play with me? And she called out the, the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F. And she stopped there. And we thought, well, maybe this little girl will, will copy what Marlene has just done. And a few seconds later, you heard this very faint F. And Marlene and I looked at each other with our jaws dropping. You know, we were so excited. We weren't scared. We were just excited. And Marlene said, oh, wonderful. Now, can you tell us how old you are? And then you heard this little voice say, five, and we both heard it. And so that's instant verification that it's not just you having a, <laughs> a crazy moment. Five is very young for a border, I would think. Yes, I, I agree. And yeah, I think she didn't know the alphabet because she was too young. But we don't know. There's not enough record about the house or about the academy. Did a little girl actually pass away there, and therefore her spirit lingers. Another thing that can happen is that you certainly have entities or spirits in a place like Overland Mansion. Perhaps somebody has passed away there, like somebody who lived there and loved the place and has a reason to stick around. But in the little girl's case, maybe she wandered in. It has been known that certain spirits can wander into a place. Mm. Or maybe she felt the presence of the kids over the decades. Maybe she did, yes. Maybe she and was drawn to the house and there she's stayed ever since. We just don't know. But we do know that she's there. She's been seen. We've heard her. We've heard her giggling. We think it's her who slams the doors upstairs just for fun. And footsteps down the stairs have been heard. And we think it's probably her. So the stairs are also kind of a magnet for ghosts. We've had some interesting things happen around the base of the stairs where we've set up equipment such as listening equipment or special laser lights to catch entities walking through them. And many, many, many times during investigations, the batteries in those devices will just be drained very, very suddenly. Mm. Completely charged batteries will go. And that's another phenomenon like cold spots. The entities seem to suck the energy out of, out of batteries and, and the atmosphere. It really runs the gamut of of a true haunting in terms of apparitions, sounds, noises. The only thing we don't really get are smells. Sometimes you'll get a smell of a cigar or something in a haunted place. I wanted to tell you about a great deal from my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press. They're offering 20% off to listeners of Cold Case Canada. This includes my new book, Cold Case BC, Cold Case Vancouver, Vancouver Exposed and Murder by Milkshake. You can also pick up any of Aaron Chapman's fabulous books, including his latest, Vancouver Vice, The Last Gang in Town and Vancouver After Dark. Just go to arsenalpulp.com and use the promo code COLDCASE at checkout. That's one word, COLDCASE, and get 20% of these books and other great titles. Seppoli House is a huge arts and craft house built near Deer Lake. The house is painted dark brown and the leaded windows are foreboding on a winter day. And like any good haunted house, this one has quite the history. 
Grace Dixon married Henry Seppeli in 1894 in Vancouver. It was the first marriage for Grace, 31, and the second for Henry, who was 43. Henry ran a successful real estate and insurance business, but it was Grace who bought the land in 1909 and built the retirement house from money she'd inherited from her brother-in-law, A.G. Ferguson. That's the same Ferguson behind Ferguson Point in Stanley Park. Grace named her estate Fairacres. In 1911, when the house was finished, it was the largest in Burnaby. A story in the local newspaper described it as a palatial home with fine lawns, terraces, rockeries, greenhouses, lodge stables on 20 acres of which 10 were landscaped. The Seppelis lived at the estate during the summer and wintered at their house in Shaughnessy, a distance of about 20 kilometres away. When Grace died in 1917, her will said that Henry could live there until he died and then the money from the sale of the estate would go to funding a children's playground in Stanley Park. But after his wife's death and against her wishes, Henry packed up, moved into the swanky Vancouver Club in downtown Vancouver and rented out the estate. He eventually sold everything to Fred Buscombe, former mayor of Vancouver, and the leftover $13,000 funded one of the nicest and largest playgrounds in Canada, right next to the pool at Second Beach. There's not much of anything left except for the name, but it still remains a playground today. So ex-Mayor Buscombe sold the house to a group of Benedictine monks from Oregon in 1939. And the monks made some changes. They took down the aviary, added a gym, that's now the James Cowan Theatre, and they lived there for the next 15 years. In 1954, they moved out to Mission and sold the mansion to the Temple of the More Abundant Life. The temple was actually a thinly disguised cult. Rumour has it that male teachers had to wear beards because facial hair acted as an antenna allowing them to pick up vibrations emitted by the universe. The cult was finally outed when a Vancouver Sun reporter wrote that its leader, Archbishop John, was a convicted bigamist with a string of extortion and wife-beating charges in the United States. He also had a wall full of bogus degrees. Archbishop John eventually fled back to the United States and the city of Burnaby bought the estate in 1966. For a couple of years, Fairacres became home to Simon Fraser University students. If you tally up the reported ghostly sightings, Grace comes out on top. She appears to have a decent wardrobe because eyewitness accounts have her floating upstairs or walking around the gallery wearing flowing dresses in either white, blue or grey. A few have spotted a face in an upstairs window. In October 2000, a private security guard hired for a film shoot told a reporter, When I saw that face in the window, I just about died. Sweet Jesus, I just looked up and there she was, looking down at me like I was doing something wrong. Then she disappeared, just like that. In December 1985, Damien Inwood was a reporter with the province newspaper. He was sent out to Seppley House on assignment with a photographer to report on ghostly happenings. I remember. 
remember going there with the photographer, Les Bazo, and our assignment was to sleep overnight there, and they were going to lock us in but not set the internal alarms so we could actually wander around. We went outside and we took some pictures. I was wearing a kind of a Dickensian nightcap and gown and stuff, <laughs> as I remember, <laughs> holding a candle, you know, all sort of looking spooky. Yeah, we were having a good old time in there. We had a bottle of whiskey with us, and we were basically toasting the ghost and walking around sort of challenging the ghost to come out and eventually we settled down in the library we had sleeping bags on the floor and we went off to sleep and at some point in the night it was probably around three or four in the morning i woke and i had this absolute feeling of terror i could hardly move i was so frightened and i could feel this presence in the room I couldn't even, you know, move enough to wake up Les, who was sleeping sort of alongside me in a sleeping bag. And I I was frightened that if I moved too much, the ghost would see me and it would come after me. And so <laughs> so I kind of lay there, um, you know, rigid almost with fear. It was a classic thing that you, you hear about. It seemed like the temperature had definitely dropped in the room. And I could feel this thing. I never saw anything. And gradually it just went away. When I woke Les up, he'd slept through the whole thing, of course, and he wasn't sure uh, if I'd imagined it or what, but I'm pretty sure I didn't. And the funny thing was I'd set this uh, voice-activated tape recorder going in in the room, and when I played it back, the only sound was sort of a... Squeaking <laughs> noise of fear, which I presume was me. <laughs> so, of course, when I got back to the office, I was telling people about it, and they just thought I made the whole thing up. When you were at Seppley House, who was in there then? It was the Burnaby Art Gallery. It was then. Okay. Yeah. They actually took us down into the basement, and there were workbenches down there where they framed up the pictures and things, and some of the fellows that worked down there told us about strange things happening, like they'd leave a screwdriver or... A pair of pliers in a certain place on the bench and they turn around and then when they came back it had moved several feet away. Staff members say they've heard footsteps and windows opening and shutting on the top floor when no one is there. Others say they've heard a rustling of satin, felt a chill and smelt perfume or cigar smoke. Staff report missing keys, appliances that go off for no reason, calls that come in on a dead phone line and a sprinkler system that turns itself on when the house and grounds get too crowded. One woman said she felt a hand grab her ankle as she went upstairs. A staffer reporting the apparition of a praying monk, who was apparently either frightened or just annoyed because he got up, turned around and disappeared. The politician hasn't appeared in any of the reported sightings, although it's always possible that he's a cigar smoker. I remember going to a wedding at Seppoli House about 20 years ago. I'm not normally susceptible to ghosts, but the hairs on the back of my neck were definitely standing up when I went upstairs to poke around. The good news is that you can drop in and visit the house and check out some great art at what's now the Burnaby Art Gallery. But just as a warning, staff are a bit touchy about the ghosts, so it's best not to mention them. I'm so happy to let you know that Erin Haken, an accomplished jewellery designer and goldsmith, has opened a studio in Vancouver. While Erin throws her heart and soul into all her creations, 
what she most loves to do is design treat-yourself pieces. Erin will work with you to source the perfect stone, choose your favourite metal, produce drawings of your design, and then create a ring that is truly unique to you. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. This last ghost story is from a chapter called Haunted Highways, and it appeared in the book Ghosts, More Eerie Encounters. This is Bill Ullman reading The Phantom of Highway 1. In the spring of 1975, John and Janice Bradley left Vancouver to visit John's brother and his wife, who were living in Kamloops. The decision to go had been made at the last minute, and it was not until after dinner that they finally loaded their suitcases into the trunk of their car and got underway. They tried to find lodgings at Spence's Bridge, but everything was full or closed. Sometime after 1 a.m., with almost no traffic on the road, the couple pressed on. Although they had been on the road more than three hours, they were not particularly tired. The view of the glittering night sky in this part of British Columbia kept them awake. John was behind the wheel as they approached the brow of a small hill about halfway between Spence's Bridge and the turnoff to Ashcroft. Along one side of the road, Janice noticed a number of shacks, obviously abandoned. No lights were visible in the windows, the walls leaned crazily in one direction or the other, and on most, the roofs seemed to be falling in. Suddenly, their high beams illuminated the back of a woman walking along the edge of the highway. As they drew closer, John and Janice could see that she was short, with black hair cut bluntly above her shoulders. Janice estimated that she was less than five feet tall, which, combined with her straight black hair, made it seem likely that she was of Asian descent. Her clothes, though, did not look like anything John or Janice had seen before. She wore short, dark pants that came down only as far as her calf, and a dark vest over a puffy-sleeved blouse. On her feet, she had black leather shoes. Even though it was a beautiful night, it seemed strange to Janice that the woman was out in this lonely spot without a coat. The way she was walking was also unusual. She moved quickly, taking short, mincing steps with her elbows bent and her arms swinging rapidly back and forth. "'Pull over closer to the shoulder, John,' Janice urged, "'and I'll see if she needs help.' As John drew up beside the walking woman, Janice rolled down her window. "'Excuse me, madam,' she began. "'Do you need—' The woman jerked her head in their direction. The movement of the head was strange, as though the motion was not altogether human. Her face was white as porcelain and lacked eyebrows, defined by a mouth twisted into a vicious snarl, and eyes so electrifying that Janice was later unable to find words to describe their appearance. The pupils were incredibly large and darker than anything she had ever seen. Both John and Janice were sure that whatever it was they were looking at was not human. John swore, slammed his foot down on the gas pedal, and the car sped away. Janice quickly turned around to look out the rearview window, but no one was there. The woman seemed to have vanished. John did not slow down until he could see the lights of Ashcroft in the distance. What the hell was that, he finally said. Janice had no idea. The following day, Janice phoned the Ashcroft detachment of the RCMP to inquire if there had been an accident along that side of the highway. Nothing had been reported to the police. Still unsettled, she asked the clerk whether there were any Asian families living in the area. No, said the clerk, not for some time. Once, though, the woman said, there were a number of Chinese people living on a few farms, 
but the old dwellings had long been abandoned and were falling down. They could still be seen along the highway. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much to my special guests, Bill Ullman, Patrick Dunay, Damien Inwood, and Greg Mansfield, and to everyone who listened. And a special thank you to those who bought me coffee this season, reviewed or rated the show on Apple or Spotify, or just sent me a nice note. It's all really appreciated. This is the last episode for Season 3. Many of the episodes in this season were from my latest book, Cold Case BC. I'll be back in the spring with Season 4, but in the meantime, please stay in touch through my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and you can also contact me through my website, evelazarus.com. And now, it's my pleasure to leave you with a trailer from David Williams at the Fireside Canada podcast. You know, sometimes the best way to get to know a country, its history, and its people is through its stories, the myths, mysteries, and monsters. I'm David Williams, host of Fireside Canada. I explore Canadian legends, lies, and lore, one spectacular tale at a time. Because it doesn't need to be camping season to hear a good fireside story. So grab a drink and join me by the fire. Listen on the Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency.